Welcome to Not Quite Right. My name's Ed. And I'm Amanda. Amanda, this is the big one. Very excited. So last episode, we talked about the long list and we read the long list out. Mm -hmm. This episode is all about the short list. So we're going to read out all of the short list entries. And at the end of the episode, we will be revealing the winner of the Not Quite Right prize for Flash Fiction. It feels like it's been a very long time coming and I'm sure everybody listening will feel the same way. Like they've just been hanging out for this and we've been leaving them hanging for so long. It's time. So what we're going to do now is go through our six shortlist entries and finishing up with the winner and we'll read the story and we will talk about them. I have to apologise if my voice breaks like a 14-year-old boy. I hurt my voice screaming at my child, literally. (laughs) (laughs) So excuse me. So first up, and in no particular order, we have Truly Madly Deeply by Kathy Prokovnik. If there is a fly in this rose-scented salve of a relationship, it is Harry. A small dog that, even after six months of acquaintance, bears his teeth at me when I pat him. I suppose he has some doggy seventh sense, or he just doesn't like sycophants. In my flat, but not at Samuel's place, Harry likes to sleep on the sofa and shit on the floor when left behind. Samuel says, Who's a naughty Harry boy then? And rubs his woolly head. It's a special sofa. I changed a lot of things in the flat when Philip died. I moved my bed into the small bedroom with a tree outside the window. I had the threadbare carpet replaced. I bought a new, very expensive sofa in a deep burnt orange, a lovely colour that Philip would have hated. When I bought it, it was an act of rigid, pointless rebellion, staring down Philip's ghost and raging against his carelessness and getting sick and dying. Now it's the sofa where Samuel first put his hand on my knee and moved it up my leg and my back melted into the cushions. The day that Samuel and I go shopping together, we leave Harry in the flat with a special pig's ear treat that is meant to keep him happy. We catch the bus to the shops and I find myself in the men's section on the eighth floor. It's some years since I've been in this foreign land. A sales assistant breezes across, pointing out corduroy trousers and merino wool scarves. Samuel laughs and says he's a moleskins and blue shirt person himself, takes one of the scarves and drapes it around my neck. Ah, he says, that is wow. He kisses my forehead. I sit on a padded seat looking out a seventh floor window waiting for Samuel to emerge from the change room. Adele's earnest tones loop around us, pouring out of the ceiling or the walls. Slightly too loud, slightly too distorted to move you. Poor Adele. Who is this calm person, patient and smiling, looking out a window, enjoying a casual chat, feeling for Adele? Where has that tight-lipped, fidgety woman gone? Her splintered heart has been smoothed. It occurs to me that this is some sort of rite of passage. I text my friend Caro, in relationship challenge number 52, buying clothes together. Laden with ribbon-handled shopping bags, we catch the bus back to my flat, struck dumb by shopping torpor, heading for relationship challenge number 53. I elbow the door open and step in Harry's shit. Also, look, there's a tear in the sofa, ragged little teeth marks around its edges, shreds of deep burnt orange dangle from Harry's unrepentant mouth. Is there an easy, undetectable way to dispose of Harry? He has crossed an indisputable line now. I'm trapped, not wanting to move my shoe and make another blob of shit. 
Samuel, stuck in the doorway, unable to see my dilemma, pushes me forward a little. My foot slides on the boards. I lose balance and fall. Even as I fall, I wonder whether Samuel will go to his dog or to me. He drops his bags and picks me up, holds me tight and croons. You're okay. You're okay. Then releases one hand to stroke my head. I lean into him and close my eyes. I hear Harry's nails tap-tap over and a wet little tongue licks my hand. To my mind, that's relationship challenges number 53 to 110, hurdled in one. The end. So congratulations, Kathy. You made it to the shortlist. I was really quite charmed by your story. I thought the use of the shit on the floor, honestly, like it was just such a, like a clever little dramatic scene, I guess. It's such a simple moment, but also you could really see the drama in it. I think as writers, one of the things that we're told is to use specificity. Mm. And a lot of the time, I think people take that to mean, well, instead of just saying he was drinking a drink, say he was drinking a Johnny Walker Mm. red label with Coke. Mm. So be specific. But I think it's not only about just choosing that kind of specificity, it's about anecdotes. So there is that little reference to, in my flat but not at Samuel's place, Harry likes to sleep on the sofa and shit on the floor when left behind. Samuel says, who's a naughty Harry boy then? And rubs his woolly head. I kind of like that it is a specific moment. It adds a dimension to the story. It adds a dimension to the kind of house it is and the kind of characters that are there. And I think this is, that was in the first paragraph. Mm. That really caught my attention. And it's a theme that is repeated through this story, just the the well-chosen little moments that make up a day that say something about the characters and the story. I think that's great writing. What I also liked about it was that it just focused in on just a moment, really. Like we, we saw bits of other moments, you know, they go shopping together and so on, and we get little details about this couple. But ultimately, it's not some big dramatic set piece scene. You know, it's a little day-to-day moment and yet it is so pivotal to the character. I found the writing to be really strong as well. Just the choice of words was quite beautiful at times and um, just flowed really nicely and just told a story end-to-end as well. Yeah, and you said it's about a moment, but I think also what's done so well in this story is that it's very dynamic. Mm. So the past wasn't told as a backstory here. It was told as a, as a sequence of events that are, that are happening kind of in real time, although it's not really a progression from one thing to the next necessarily. Well, we're just getting the relevant parts as they become relevant. That's right. And it's not like this big info dump. This is yeah. probably like a really good example for anyone who's struggling with that idea of like, how do I tell backstory without info dumping? Here, it, the author has chosen little moments to bring in throughout. So we're, we're hearing about the previous partner or husband, whoever this person was, in these little details like when they're shopping, in the detail of why she chose the couch she chose and these sorts of things. And I think that was quite artfully done. The great thing about doing it this way is that you're not stuck in the character's head, as I think so mm. often you are. That's in these what kind the of info stories. dump is, isn't it? When you're getting a yeah. lot of backstory, it's like, okay, now I just have to hear what the character thinks about yes. this. And and I've been guilty of that myself for sure, because you're trying to really convey this information and it all feels so important. But at the end of the day, it's not engaging, even if it is important. So there's just a a balance to be had there. And I think this author did that well. Yeah. And I definitely learned a lot reading this story too. So well done, Kathy Prokovnik. 
The second story to make the shortlist is called Backmire Bridge, Summer 08 by M. Arata Burkle. Jumping off Backmire Bridge began with my grandparents, back when failing farms meant there was little else to do but take risks. Dad called it a family rite of passage, so the day after we rolled into his ancestral village, he took my brother Michael and me for a hike along country roads. By the time we reached the old suspension bridge, all three of us were sweat slick. That was supposed to motivate us, but standing up there in last year's swimsuit, my toes gripped the edge, my knees knocked. Instead of the creek below, I studied broccoli treetops and counted my breaths the way mum taught me. Dad said I'd be fine so long as I aimed right. I was supposed to fling myself towards the rocky bluff. Supposedly, the water next to it was deepest. The golden shallow end, where the local girls applied sunscreen to each other's shoulders, that was dangerous. I could kill myself on that underwater shelf. Michael told me I'd crack my head like an egg. Dad said not to look at it, because looking at it could make me aim wrong. The local girls were watching. They pointed toward the bluff, where Dad treaded water after his swan dive. They were all blonde and freckled. They looked like they could have been my cousins, or maybe big sisters. I wanted to ask if they'd jump with all of us holding hands, but Dad hollered for me to hurry. Don't think about it, he said, and I screamed when Michael shoved me. He hooked me with the same arm, then laughed as he jerked me back over the edge. My butt hit the bridge's wood. Girlish giggling bubbled up from below. My eyes stung. Remember what Dad said, Michael chided. He offered his hand. I blinked fast and muttered something about dust before taking it. We'd ventured into the Ozarks to take a break from tears. Dad had pitched the road trip as spending summer vacation with family, but Michael told me we were just schmoozing for a place to stay. Everything we owned sat in the van parked outside Great Aunt Kathy's hunting lodge. That evening, we were supposed to meet her for dinner, bringing our own Backmire Bridge stories and let her weave them into the family mythology. Michael pulled me to my feet, and while I crept towards the bridge's edge, he hung off the suspension wires. Leaning out over the water, he had his eyes on the bikini-clad sunbathers. I'm going to show Cat how it's done. Dad gave the okay, and Michael took a running start. After he flung himself to gravity's whim, I couldn't see his face. But when I think back on it, I imagine he understood the stupid thing he'd done. I imagine his smile dropped, and his features cycled through all the same feelings Dad's did when we got the call about Mum. At the end of it, I imagine there wasn't a single crease left on my brother's face. That's how it was for Dad, and like Dad, my brother didn't scream. Michael landed feet first with a wet crack. He hit the shelf just a foot shy of safe, and once he'd collapsed, his legs floated at ragdoll angles. He bled beautifully. A muddy red boundary smeared between glinting shallows and the pond scum-coloured water we were aiming for. Sometimes I wonder if that made my jump easier, but like Dad said, I didn't actually think much about it. I saw my brother the way Mum appeared in nightmares, and I jumped after him. The end. So this was one of my favourite stories. It's the story of a family that's dealing with grief and encountering more grief, and I thought it was very subtly written and emotional. Some of the things I loved, which were the hints that were implied in the backstory, but never really elaborated, which... Leaves you wanting more. Leaves you wanting and thinking about the story. So the death of the mother and the impact on the family. I've had this feeling reading it that the real story was hidden just below the surface mm. in the minds of all of the characters in the family. So I thought that was really powerfully and well done. And the other thing I loved about this was related to the prompts. And there was actually only one adverb that I could find in the story. And it's in the sentence, he bled beautifully. 
And I think that's a really great use of the adverbs. I may have mentioned that mm, on the last episode did. that we yeah. did. But it's a great use of adverbs just to have it be something that is very memorable and unique. One of the things I really loved about this was just the building of suspense, mm. you know, like there's just so many little moments in it as we go along that just make you tense. Not even necessarily tense in the sense that something horrible is going to happen, but just this sense of suspense of what will happen, like the mention of the girls, you know, applying sunscreen to each other's backs. Mm. And it's just such an interesting fact. And you sort of get this sense of the main character that he's not quite old enough to care about yeah. the girls, but he notices them. And then we see the brother who is obviously trying to impress them. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic as well. That's not overtly explored, but just that use of that little detail just helps us explore like the age of the characters mm. without ever sort of having to say it. And um, I think that's really artfully done. I had mixed feelings about this story. I think it was one of those ones where I knew it was beautifully written. I could certainly see that. And yet, I don't know, there was something about it. it felt, obviously, it feels pretty bleak, yeah. um, which certainly wouldn't make a story, you know, not a winner for me. It's more just, I don't know, it just, it, I guess it's very hard to describe. It's one of those ones that you feel rather than, yeah. and I think that's, you know, all credit to that story and to the author, that it's more of an emotional experience. Yeah, I agree with that take. And I mean, there are some stories which we read, and I think we'll read a couple next, that are very flamboyant and mm. engaging and over the top. Mm. This wasn't over the top. It was no. very subdued. And it was a tragic story, and it's emotional, and it's much more subtle. I guess maybe what was challenging for me was, you know, we talked about there's something just below the surface, mm -hmm. and maybe that's what it was. I couldn't quite get what I wanted to out of this story. Like, it's very in your face what actually happens in the end. And yet, like, there was something missing for me. And I think it was that secondary story that was going on yeah. that maybe wasn't fully fleshed out, which again is a strength of this story. So it's certainly not really a criticism so much as just, I guess, an observation about the story and the choices that the author made. Yeah. I know for myself, the first time I read this story, I got to the end and I needed to read it again. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is what I mean. Like it just had that effect on me where I just wasn't quite sure what I was getting out of it, Yeah, which again is like pretty much a great thing. So <laughs> congratulations. Yeah. So well done, M. Arata Burkle on that one. So the third shortlist entry, Amanda's going to read because it's about her. <laughs> I do want to know if it was a coincidence or not. I'm going to read it as if it was me because I have certainly put myself in the shoes of this character and I thoroughly enjoyed it. A similar it. thing has happened to you, has it? <laughs> Since. I actually used it as a, a template to then go on and behave in this way. No. Mm. All right. Without further ado, this is Untitled Number 2 by Greg Schmidt. Amanda sat anxiously on the toilet, surveying the cubicle walls. A large piece of graffiti, jaggedly scratched in the back of the door, stared down at her, demanding to be read. Perform the right, drop your bricks and take a shite. Charming, she thought. She tore a square of toilet paper from the roll and folded it idly in her hands as she attended to her business. Not one to venture into public toilets, particularly for the longer form of the task, Amanda was keen to be away from this place. She preferred the sanctity of her own facilities. Her friends teased her when she spoke of her reluctance to use public toilets. The world won't turn to shit, they mocked. What's the worst that could happen? Exposure to the bountiful bacteria-rich surfaces, for starters? Primarily the ungodly one upon which she now perched. Today, though, the need outweighed all else. 
So here she sat, atop a stinking shopping mall public toilet, urging herself to finish quickly. When the transaction was complete, she stood, pulled up her bricks, to use the local parlance, and flushed. The pipes clanked and churned loudly. Above, the fluorescent lights faintly flickered. Amanda opened the cubicle door, ready to wash her hands and wash this experience from her mind, only to be greeted by a man leaning against the sink. If his appearance in the ladies' toilets wasn't shocking enough, he was dressed in a kilt, luxuriant in red and green tartan. Did she perform the right lassie? He said fervently in a thick Scottish accent. What? stammered Amanda, keeping her distance. Who are you? This is the ladies' room. This place be cursed, should the right be complete. Right? What are you talking about? Get out of here or I'll call security. Amanda moved towards the door, but the man quickly blocked her way. The words of her friends echoed in her mind. Front runner now for the worst thing that could happen in a public toilet was being assaulted by some Scottish weirdo. Look, mister, she said, finding venom in her voice. I don't know who you think you. Just answer me, lass, he said, ignoring her. Did your skin touch that unholy seal? And did you leave something behind? I beg your pardon. Did you put your bum on the seat and, he said, motioning towards the cubicle. Uh, well, yes, that's generally how these things work, she said, absentmindedly, shocked at being asked such a question. But it's no business of yours, she continued, regathering her composure. Ah, lass, he said forlornly. Incomplete in the right, you broke the seal and crossed a line betwixt worlds. What? scoffed Amanda. The world ye ken is gone. Right, she said, having had enough of this. Quite the pleasure listening to your ramblings. Now out of my way. You didn't want to go out there, lass. <laughs> Amanda pushed past the man, purposefully striding through the door, back out into the mall. The scene before her so overwhelmed her senses that it took a moment to register. Every surface, every object within sight was smeared in a sludgy, brown, moist muck. The floor, like a syrupy bog, sucked at her feet, and she sank as she tried to steady her balance. Above hung dark, slimy stalactites from which dripped small brown blobs landing on the floor with squelchy splashes. A putrid smell penetrated her nose, invading her insides as she breathed in. It's all gasped Amanda, struggling to find words, to find air. I lass, said the man, emerging behind her. Tis all shite. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Sincerest apologies for my particularly dodgy Scottish accent. It's not my strong suit. <laughs> so I, I was probably the biggest fan of this one. And it does help that her name's Amanda. It really does. That got my attention immediately. But I think the comedy is what sold me. When I first read this, and I think I tweeted about it, I was actually in pain laughing about this. Every line of it had me laughing harder and harder picturing this scene. So uh, congratulations to the author here. That was very funny. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, this was by far the funniest story that oh, we yeah. received. Um, <laughs> and I think that's all there is to say. I mean, it was funny and... Completely ridiculous. Completely ridiculous. Like the premise of a supernatural Scotsman <laughs> that inhabits the toilets. Um, it's very timely, this idea of a man invading the women's oh, toilets. True. Isn't it? A man in a skirt, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. And just the idea that you actually turn the world to shit. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you. So well done, Greg Schmidt. Well, speaking of difficult accents. The oh, next... good luck with this one. I can't wait to hear you attempt it. <laughs> There's no way I can do this justice. So it's a story called Modern Human by Charles Byrne. Listen, bro, I told you. I'm on all their maps. Hinge, Tinder, Bumbly, Bagel Dates. Shit, I even got some okay Cupid from the day. So many chatbots on that one, I finna get me some honestly goodness, genuine robot dates soon, LMFAO, like they do in Japan. For real, I saw them shits on BBC. They got Android ships there. My point is, what's a Harvard-educated lady in Manhattan with the Cupid mouth of Clara Bow doing swiping right on me in the first place? It's gotta be some kind of frackin' joke, am I right? And you know I loves me some Harvard, prestige-wise. She don't even have to graduate. She could pull a Zuckerberger, I don't give three shits. We could do up a little Patterson, New Jersey house like two Blue Mountain knick-knacker motherfuckers. Shit, she could bring the bacon home from Manhattan and fry it up in a pan and I'd be the artist. I know what you're saying right now. You'd still be on their maps. Fuck yeah, bro, because she'd leave my ass in a heart bite. Even after I handymanned the house, painted the deck, installed those little metal hooks in her closet, and walked around all shirtless swole like terror motherfucking crew, with all them little veins everywhere with a tool belt on. You know why? Because she sees me as a friend, bro. I know this because she texts me so. Right now, this ain't some snapdat shit. Text is forever, bro. And I'm trying to cipher that shit like it's the lawyer's paradox. Sees me as... What does that literally mean? And what friend vibration did I emanate? Like, instead of chum zoning me, she could have said I dry her up like the Atacama. Shit would at least be honest. Or she didn't feel the sparkler. Or she's just downright lacking in the feeling of respect department for me as a human being. Or I deserve me tooing. Like, that shit would be messed up. But I'd understand it, you feel me? My masculinity was compromised like a motherfucker, Brohim, and by unseen forces. We'd went on three dates. I'm not an animal, you know that. My roll's slow, so I dry-pecked her cheek like a pigeon on the first date. Then on the second date, right as her bus was pulling up, I took her arm all gentle-like and asked her milady, and we had the sweetest, warmest kiss, Brohim. It was like eating warm flapjacks straight off the griddle at Nana's. You know the feeling? But then that third date, I heaved some vulnerable shit, like how I cried at that Sade concert, or how I like giving oral coitionals better than receiving it. Goddamn Hennessy. Funny, she liked saying vulnerable shit when it was her turn, all giggly, but when it was my turn, her face did this thing. It was like her eyes zoomed in a microsecond while the rest of her face zoomed back a microsecond. Bro, it was like those job interviews where you're supposed to say how bad you are at shit, but it better not be something actually bad. Or some song and jiggy we heard before, you piece of actual shit. You see what happened next. A face full of hair, then a mouth like a drawed up drawbridge. Then the text, a full day after my text. Bro, tell me. Tell me how to be a modern Hugh man. Shit ain't working out for me. I'm an anachronism. Or catachronism. You heard me. I don't want an incel ship. Don't let them incel me, bro, Heem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Like, I had to stifle my laughs that entire time. <laughs> that was so good. I think we both agreed on that one that it was just the winner in terms of voice. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like just a very, very clear sense of voice, a very clear character who was unique. In fact, it was almost all voice, right? And that, that's what it was. Like there wasn't really a story. Like I, I took issue with other stories on the long list and, and they didn't make the shortlist because they weren't a story. And yet here we are 
with one that's it's it's a retelling of a story more so than a story itself. Yeah, and but like you said, it was such a clear voice, such a compelling voice, and so imaginative in this mixture of slang, real world slang, mm. and what was clearly made up or half made up slang. Yeah. And then also just throwing in like quite intellectual comments as yeah. well, like in the middle there, like this person's trying really hard to come off cool when really they're a massive yeah. nerd. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was the, the character that you instantly got. This guy is trying really hard to be cool. Yeah. Do you know what I really love too? That little moment where the author's written, paraphrasing here, it was like her eyes zoomed in a microsecond and her face mm. zoomed out a microsecond or something like that. Yep. I'm like- I've been on dates like back in the, my distant past where you're just like, it's like something just switches in your brain. And it's such a funny way to present it. But I actually felt that happen. Like I could, when that was described, I'm like, that is the exact feeling when someone says some dumb shit and you're like, I'm out. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, but, but a great story. And I think um, surprisingly hard to pull off something like mm. this. And this is a real testament to character because mm. I feel like character just gets you so far. And this yeah. is something I mentioned in the last episode that I think I've realised since reading so many stories is that if I'm invested in the character, they can do whatever they want and I'm going to watch, you know. And I think that's what happened here. I was invested in this character. I thought he was funny and charming and I wanted to know what was going to happen next. And and he was really hooking me in with the way he was speaking. Just... Charming piece of work. Well done. So well done, Charles Byrne. Great work. Brohim. <laughs> Our next shortlisted entry is I Carried You by Gwendolyn Higgins. You don't know what it means, but I carried you. In the hopeful days and nights, the looking forward weeks, the in-between time that stretched to over yonder and stretched and stretched until you. I carried you those sleepless nights with the perfect weld of your too new body outside against mine. Through the fog-stunned times, the wistful times of sing-song whispers and that new knot longingly under my ribs, filling to breathlessness the place where I made you. Oh, how I carried you. I carried you the heedless days, out of trees and friends' houses, up and out from the tangles of bushes, bedclothes and fears hauling the precarious roar and crash of your emotions, your sleepy abandon over expanses of country, bustling streets and dim-lit evenings. If you knew the way the weight of you turned heavier in my arms, firmer on my hip and livelier on my shoulders, impatient on my lap. I witnessed you. I caught the moments, the seconds that fleetingly mattered and that you could not see, catching them like the things that slid oblivious from your hands. I held the memories that would not hold and I carried them too. I carried the mounting cargo of the memories of you as you walked and ran and wandered. As you walked and ran and wandered ahead. You carried me. You carried me to the resting place, went along with the absurd rites. You keep on carrying me, as sometimes there wait in the stride of your legs, in your eyes that see the world and imagine much more in your heart that I made, until the looking forward weeks have ended like a cliff and you tumble into what it meant. You know it now, don't you? In the all-encompassing world of the two new body against yours, in the sudden narrowing of the world, in the heftier shadow of me in your world that goes on, the wondrous wisdom of how much you were loved. 
I have been waiting for you to know it. How longingly and forever and ever after, how beyond the words it is that you were loved. Oh, how I loved you. They carry you to the resting place. They carry you carrying me through those oh-so-absurd rites. How weightless I am these days. How tempting is the earth, the wondrous, wistful abandon of it, the earth upon which I once carried you. How tempting is the crossing of the line. On the other side, will it be forgotten how much I loved you? The end. Well, I think we both agreed that that was a very evocative and beautiful Mm. capturing of what it feels like to be a parent. Yeah. So the story of motherhood, the story of life and death, how our lives echo through generations. And we spoke on the last episode about the scope of stories Mm. and truly, madly, deeply being a moment. This is kind of the opposite. It's a a life and it's beyond a life. It's actually multiple lives. Yeah. And I think a lot of stories attempted this kind of grandiose thing about life, Mm. but it's really hard to pull off. It's very hard to pull um, off. In 600 words. And this story really did pull it off. I felt really did evoke something that is rare to find. I think there was a few moments in this story that captured something essential about being a parent and the hopes that you have in your children and the the fact that you really can't have any expectations of them understanding you in any way until they have children. I think that was the strength in this one. There were some lines and I may or may, I can't remember if I mentioned it last episode, but I had originally said, you know, if you want to win the not quite right prize, like make me jealous. And this one did make me jealous a few times. There's some lines in there that are just so beautiful And as a mother myself, you know, you read that and you're like, oh, I couldn't have put it better myself. And I think that was a real standout. So congratulations, Gwendolyn, on on those particular phrases and the way that you've just captured the essence of what it's like to be a parent. And it's not a traditional story structure No, I think that bears mentioning because I feel like we did warn everyone not to write a poem and this one comes pretty close. It comes close. And it's not quite a poem either, but it's, it's certainly not really a story. Yeah. It's more like a reflection on on what it's like to be a parent. Um, but it was it was a very, very good example of that. And I think that's what won us over. And I'm not sure if it's helpful to know, Gwendolyn, but you were very close. You were very close. <laughs> we had conversations about you. Yeah, an absolutely wonderful story. I'd just like to name a few honourable mentions. So these are all stories that for me were very memorable and that I'd considered for the shortlist or that maybe that we'd considered. Maybe you agree with some of these. Listen. There's only six spots in the shortlist. That's not many. And some of these were really close calls. And we did debate at length in some cases. And I wouldn't be surprised if people strongly disagree with our choices that we came to in the end. Even between the two of us, it was hard to come to an agreement. But yeah, with only six places there, it's it was pretty bloody tough. All right. And so in, in no particular order, these are the honourable mentions. The first one is called Longing for Home by Joe Skinner which is a very well-written and sensitive story about a child being brought up in less than ideal circumstances and learning to make his own moral decisions. And for me, this one was very close. Second one is What Franny Did by Isabel Burns. And What Franny Did is a creative story about a supernatural printer that grants wishes. Do you remember that one? <laughs> Quite like that one. Yeah. <laughs> really original concept. I mean, I, I've, I've certainly never read that idea. And fun fact, Eddie and I met at a, basically a printing company. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we could really relate to the issues <laughs> associated with the printer there. Uh, the third call out is a story called Southern Baptism by Catherine Healy. 
Um, this one was a clearly an American story mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. about meeting God at a gas station. I really liked the style of writing and, and basically the vibe. Yeah, that it had a really had. good voice, that one. Then there was Farewell to Thee, Precious Balls. Definitely a standout <laughs> story, one that's very hard to forget. And we mentioned that last time because it had we a killer did. opening line. Yep, and that's by Galen Gower. There's a story called Ping by Meredith Hennessy about a woman finding her way through the world of online dating who also happens to get stuck down a well. I loved that one. That was quite funny. I just really loved how taking such a common issue that people have, texting each other after a first date and just really taking it to the nth degree. That was a very clever concept. Another one that came close was Limerence by Jessica Huya. Another one we called out for having a very strong opening line. Yeah, it's the story of a woman who wants to fuck her dentist, <laughs> but it's just a passing phase. That's right. Another one we called out last episode was How to Establish Cordial Relations with Your Cephalopod Neighbour by Marriott Robinson, which is a surreal tale of a squid who moves in next door. Also Paradise Lost by Jane Rice about an alternate reality where palmistry is real. Mm, I like that one. And the fun fact, Jane's a friend of mine. She's in my writer's group. We did judge this completely blind. Um, So that was fun to discover her on the long list uh, once we'd made all our decisions. And I'm so sorry, Jane, that you didn't get any further because it is a beautiful story and it was definitely one of those borderline ones that was so close. And finally, a story called Train Station by Maya Sandvik, which was an evocative story about an an encounter at a Japanese train station. Mm, With a deer. Yeah. So that's another one I really liked the vibe of. Yeah. I think that one was really interesting because I think we both had a very similar reaction to it, which was just not sure what quite what to make of this story, but I know I really liked Mm. the feeling it gave me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So well done to all those honourable mentions. You came very close. You can send your hate mail through to <laughs> contact at notquiterightpodcast.com. Attention to Amanda. <laughs> but there can only be one winner. There can only be one. And we did fight long and hard about this one. I'm sure it bears mentioning that any one of these stories could be a winner depending on how you judge them because they're all so different, you know, they're all so very different. I think what made this final one stand out for me was how it ticked every box. So, without further ado, here's the winner of the Not Quite Right Prize for Flash Fiction. The Interrogation by Remy Joel. Did you really do that? She asks. Neither denying it nor fessing up seemed like a good option. Possibly, I say. She frowns. Did you know what you were doing? I honestly don't know the answer. Vaguely. Did you think it through? There was no thinking on my part. There was the smell of cookies escaping the oven and the rain pounding so hard on the windows that it blocked off the rest of the world. And then there was us both laughing at the dough that had gotten in her hair and me trying to get it out leaning in close and discovering that her hair had a smell of its own. Regrettably, no, I say. She raises her chin, signalling that the toughest questions are yet to come. Are you aware that there's a line? I suppose I've been dimly aware of the line, but it's only now that it's shown itself. It has, in fact, taken control of the universe. Keenly aware, I say. I don't know how she knew it was a kiss. My lips barely touched her hair. My face must have lingered. She pulled away with an alarming look, then turned and commanded me to follow. I complied and marched to the sitting room, where she directed me to the sofa. She pulled her chair up close, as if I were a flight risk. She continues, Do you know where the line is? Can you see it clearly? 
Her eyes are intense. I drop my gaze to her legs, just inches from mine. She wears a skirt that reaches just above her knees. It's blue, the skirt, and a thin strip of orange runs along the hem, showing off both the blue and the tone of her skin. Stunningly clearly, I say. She absently runs her fingers back and forth along the bottom of her skirt, pulling it taut across her knees. And you know it's a line that perhaps in theory is crossable, but that once traversed might be impossible to cross back over. I haven't given this a moment of thought until now, of course, but I'm catching up quickly. Miserably aware, yes. What does she usually wear? Jeans and t-shirts? Overalls? I've no idea. But I know exactly how the blue skirt clings to her hips, and how it falls against her calves when she's standing, and how, when she sits, it slides up and the hem traces a bright orange line across her knees. She says, you've always been a true friend, right? This is not the sort of thing we usually ask each other, but I give it a go. I think through our history, and the answer comes easily. Unfailingly, I say. She takes a deep breath. To me, she says, among all the wonderful things in the world, some of which I have, and some of which I only dream, a true friend is among the dearest, and this dear thing is to be put at risk only for something more beautiful still. She pauses then says, do you see it like that? I want to say, assuredly, yes, but I think she's had enough of my trite responses. I pull my eyes away from her legs and look at her eyes. I just nod. Her face is softened. She seems to be out of questions other than the big silent one, the one posed by the tears filling her eyes. This question turns out to be the easiest. I put my hands on her knees and lean across the orange line, way across. I was a huge fan of this story from the very first time I read it. And again, I think I tweeted about it. I was like, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's a difficult one to read aloud. And I would encourage everyone to jump onto the website to read it because I think there's this cross between internal thoughts and the dialogue that is difficult for us to replicate here in reading it aloud. And the dialogue itself is so peculiar, I think. Yeah. uh, It's it's a certain mood. Mm. But that's what I loved about it. And I think we had some discussions about this because I think it won me over perhaps more than it did you, certainly initially, that I found the voice in this very strong and unique and perhaps not ringing true to what a natural conversation might Mm. feel like. You know, we are throwing in all these adverbs here. I think it was artful to throw the adverbs into the dialogue because, of course, we use them and we did discuss this last episode more in dialogue than we might otherwise But I found that that actually really developed a unique voice to me and developed a bit of a sense of character as well, like the way that this, I'm assuming it's a man, is is replying to this woman gradually with, you know, these excessively (laughs) adverbial phrases or whatever. I don't know. I just, it got me. Like it really sucked me in. And then again, this was one that did tell a story. Like it took a moment, but it told us an actual story where something significant changed between these characters. And I guess like once I'd read it initially, like I didn't stop thinking about it the whole time. I kept comparing other stories to this one. One thing we spoke about uh, in this story was the use of tense, mm. which initially threw me. I think you were thrown by that interiority versus what was happening in yeah. the moment because yeah. we are getting this these sort of flashbacks and it's only a flashback to a couple of moments ago. You know, it's a flashback to this scene where he's he's kissing her hair because it smells so nice um, and it's only just happened and so, but then we're back in the present moment. 
and I guess, yeah, if you're not switched on to it, perhaps that could be a bit disorienting. Yeah. I didn't find it to be disorienting when I was reading it, but I guess that's just how you interact with the story. I don't think I found it disorienting when I was reading it. I think as I was going through it, looking at you know the way it was written with a kind of fine tooth comb, I picked up on the fact that the tense was switching. But it's done really intentionally. Mm. It's not a mistake. No, not at all. He's, he's reflecting on what's just yeah. what's just happened. I thought it was just such a nice moment too. And I think this is a good example of where flash fiction can just touch on some just like real normal human moments that happen. And we talked about this originally when in our bonus episode about how to win not quite right prize, but it doesn't necessarily have to be life or death, you mm. know. In It can just be these other things that happen in life that could actually be quite compelling. So, again, I, th- I think the strength of this story was in how well-rounded it was. Mm. We had, in my view, a really strong voice. We had characters who were developed through what was going on. We had interesting use of the prompts and effective use of the prompts. And overall, just a satisfying story with, you know, a beginning, a middle and an end and quite a charming, happy ending, which yeah, you know, I'm kind, a fan kind of. Yeah, kind of a great <laughs> conclusion and one of the top, I would say, closing lines. Absolutely. Yeah, it was It was a strong ending, strong finish. So congratulations, huge congratulations. You won the Not Quite Right Prize. Thank you for sharing your story with us. I found it really moving and beautiful and I'm so glad that you wrote it. So you've just heard us read the stories out to varying levels of proficiency with with accents and and so forth. They will all be up on the website, if not now, very soon. So definitely head on over and take a read. I think reading these stories will do them a lot more justice than we have. How dare you? My Scottish (laughs) accent is impeccable. So huge congratulations to our shortlist and, of course, our winner. Like, this has just been such a joyful experience for me. Like, it was a lot of work to read these stories and yet did not feel like work. It was absolutely fabulous. I learned a lot. Um, I've learned a lot from all of you. And I just wanted to acknowledge those of you who might be feeling disappointed that you didn't make the shortlist or didn't win or didn't make the long list, didn't get acknowledged. Just know that we read your story. We read it. And we are so grateful that you wrote it. We just feel really honoured that you participated in the competition. And I think it's always something to celebrate when you create a piece of art. And I hope that you do celebrate it. I hope that you don't take our personal opinions as any reflection on your art. We want everybody to celebrate their own art and to continue making it. And we'd love to see you all again. I'm sure we'll be doing this again. So we've had a great time. So we hope to see you all entering again next time. Absolutely. I had a great time reading these stories. It was a lot of reading, but like I said last episode, every time I read a story, I just was blown away by the fact that there was another human being who had sat there and written the story and except in cases where it was clearly chat GPT. <laughs> so, or someone typed in the prompts. Someone typed in the prompts. <laughs> yeah. So thanks everyone who participated and we're definitely looking forward to doing this again. So before we close this episode out, let's talk about what's next for Not Quite Right. Mm -hmm. It's in the short term, we'll be back to our regular programming, whatever the hell that is. Um, 
<laughs> we have a an episode that's been in the can for a while, which I'll be editing after Just this. Just like Amanda in our Untitled number two, <laughs> exactly. she's been in the can for a while. <laughs> Different kind of can, but yes. Um, and in that episode, we're talking about some movies, actually, the Before Sunrise, Before Sunset and Before Midnight trilogy. And I guess beyond that, we've been talking about the future of the Not Quite Right Prize and the fact that we will definitely do it again. So, mm. And we will. We will. So if you're subscribed to the newsletter, we'll send out a notification when that date is planned. And we're still fleshing out the details. Mm-hmm. But one thing that we're fairly sure that will change is that next time around, it will be a paid prize. Yeah. And we've both entered paid comps ourselves. Yeah. And we know that the big draw card of a paid comp is a much more significant cash prize much for the winner yeah. and potentially for placeholders as well. So we're super excited that this model will allow us to continue the prize on into the future to offer a larger prize, to offer prizes to place getters and to basically create a space where we're rewarding this artistic talent. And we're really excited to do that. So we will keep you posted about when that's happening, the details of that. And we look forward to reading your entries again. Can't wait. And look, I think we mentioned last episode that if you wanted feedback on your particular story, its strengths, potentially its weaknesses or potential for improvement, as an optional add-on for a fee of $20, uh, we're more than happy to share that with you as well. So just get in contact. Send us an email at contact at notquiterightpodcast.com and uh, we'll give you some more details about how to get that process going. So we hope you'll stick with us. We love all our prize entrants and uh, I know it's a bit different. I know some of you have found us from forums or websites that have listed different writing competitions. Maybe you're a bit of a writing competition rat. Congratulations if you are. We love that. Look, we hope you'll stick around because it's been fun and uh, we hope you'll join us for more chats about writing nonsense. We like to think that this podcast is a bit like what you'd find if you went to a writer's retreat and you're just like after hours, like talking shit. So we occasionally talk about writing stuff. Everything sort of comes back to that in the end. We have a good time. That's right. We hope you'll stick with us. And until next time, ride on. Ride on. Thank you for listening to Not Quite Right. If you'd like to reach us via email or follow us on social media, you can find all the links on our website, notquiterightpodcast.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcasting app. Something doesn't seem quite right. Perform the right. Drop your bricks and take a shite. Yeah. Do it again in a Scottish accent. I can't do a Scottish Drop accent. Drop your bricks. Drop your bricks. <laughs> Perform the right. I can't do it. That's an Irish accent. What is it then? you got to roll your eyes. Perform the right. Perform the right. Drop your bricks and take a shite. Yeah, you do it. You oh, do, it. do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you do it. Yeah, you do it.